Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the age-banding podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 27, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who appears to be voting against the Better Care Reconciliation Act on procedural grounds, and is called... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder that if you like this show, and who couldn't, you can become a patron. Just go to twill.com, click on a patron page link, agree to pay a trifling dollar or something a month, and stop being a miserable free rider. So, Frank, this week on Twill, uh, we welcome Professor Michelle Goodwin. She's a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, with appointments at the School of Law, a program in Public Health, Department of Criminology, Law and Society, Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Stem Cell Research Center. Presumably, she has a golf cart that takes her around the campus. She is the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the School of Law and its international acclaimed reproductive justice initiative. She's an extraordinarily productive scholar, the author of six books, my latest count, Michelle, I hope I'm right, and the recipient of numerous professional and civic honors. Her latest book, Policing the Womb, the New Race and Class Politics of Reproduction, is due out later this year from Cambridge University Press. Michelle, it was great to see you in Atlanta a few weeks ago. It had been too long. And now, big welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure to be with you, Nick, and also Frank. Thank you for having me and there are golf carts on campus, <laughs> and I have been in the golf cart uh, zipping from one thing to the, to the next, but that's rarer. I usually walk. Well, I, I think that's just splendid. I, I'm, I'm hugely jealous. Our problem would be trying to park anywhere, even a golf cart. <laughs> so uh, last year, you published an article, The Pregnancy Penalty, and sort of uh, the idea of, of reproductive policing. Could you sort of uh, gently lead us into the subject matter of the piece and your basic argument? It has some incredible implications. Sure, I'm happy to. And part of it is historical. So, Nick, We've been working together for quite some time across a number of issues, and my early work in organ transplantation policy, assisted reproductive technology, actually through a backdoor led me to these areas. About 15 years ago, I began to notice it had been going on for a while, but the number of women who were being targeted with arrests for refusing C-sections, let's say, um, there had been a history of women being prosecuted because they used an illicit drug during their pregnancy. Those cases began to morph in ways that I thought were really out of control and unjustifiable because so many prosecutors said, well, these are prosecutions that are based on women birthing low birth weight babies. Well, my work in ART, very often with multiple births, those are low weight, low weight babies that are born through multiple births. So if that's the criteria for the policing of women, well, that really didn't make sense. And you could see paths of inequality that came from the that. And so that began this work. And what I've seen over time have been women arrested for um, falling down steps or for attempting suicide during pregnancy or being civilly confined for over 70 days um, b- 
because of revealing a past addiction to prescription medications or being arrested because they've driven recklessly but not under intoxication while pregnant. And so these issues coming together across so many states led me to really believe that we need to pay much greater attention to these issues. Yes, and I think this ties into the discussion in the article about sort of the legal rights to fetuses at any gestational age, these sorts of uh, this sort of language. And it's so strange to me because it seems to me that in these settings, what the state ought to be doing is focusing on providing sort of a nurturing, supportive backdrop for uh, those who are pregnant, as opposed to trying to create this sort of punitive mentality. And I, I think that just in your work, Michelle, you've done so many fascinating analyses of the history here and the ideologies. And I'm wondering, you know, are, are, are there ways in which this type of energy can be turned to more productive ends? Or is your sense that essentially the discourse about sort of pregnancy and the state just seems stuck in the direction of a punitive uh, mentality? That's a great question, Frank. So it has been punitive, but it's not always been punitive. And this is what's amazing. So more than a hundred years ago, there are cases wherein judges, including Oliver Wendell Holmes, is saying it would be absolutely preposterous to prosecute a pregnant woman for having a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And, and it's amazing to read cases over a hundred years ago where, where judges are saying that, that it's preposterous, it's ridiculous, that um, we that judges rejecting the notion of personhood. And what we've seen today is the, politis- is the politicization of women's reproductive health. And of course, it's unproductive, right? So we're in a country that leads the developed world in terms of infant mortality and maternal mortality. The CIA ranks the United States at about 50th or 51st in the world. So we're not talking about some strange group that's gotten together to say bad things about the United States. It's actually our own CDC data, CIA data, that ranks us behind countries like Bosnia in terms of maternal health and safety. So when you think about it, that an American woman is safe for having a pregnancy in a former war-torn area that's experienced genocide really helps to crystallize how horrific it is today in the United States being pregnant. So there is this sense of policing and criminalization that has traditionally fallen upon poor women of color. But I think what's so alarming now is that those women were the canaries in the coal mine. So when these were issues that were happening in the backdrop of a crack epidemic where this horrible terms were used such as crack babies and crack moms and it's important to note that research by Dr. Hallam Hurt and and Dr. Colson at in Atlanta at the University of Georgia and so many other places where she's at Emory have dispelled that notion right that there was any such thing as a crack baby but if you put that all aside the ways in which states are using women to carry out a political agenda is horrific because it's horrific in the health of women and the babies that they gestate. And it's horrific for our society. Between 2010 and 2013, there were more anti-choice and anti-contraception laws that were proposed and enacted than in the 30 years prior combined. And so it's, it's not wise because these things only end up hurting women. And I think it's also important that the following is emphasized. At a time in which this politicization has occurred, where some politicians rank the health of an embryo as equal to a woman, it's important to know that a woman is 
13 times more likely to die during childbirth and pregnancy in the United States than by ending a pregnancy. So that no matter what one thinks about abortion at all, it is important to know that the way in which women's maternal health operates today in the United States, it's one of the most dangerous propositions that she could ever consider, which is to be pregnant. And that seems ironic to many people. I mean, that's that's absolutely strange, but it's true. In much of the piece, I think you're suggesting there's a rebalancing of interests away from women to the unborn. Yet, couldn't the narrative equally be a rebalancing of interests away from women to men? Um, you know, when you think back to the time of Roe, um, I think you, you know it in one of your other pieces, how that was always, or that was also the time when we had uh, employment discrimination laws kicking in more. Um, but now we are at a time when, well, there was that Iowa um, representative, right, who questioned why, why men should have to pay for maternity care as an essential insurance benefit. We have activities at Uber, at Fox News, that make us seriously wonder whether um, there is um, a freedom of discrimination for women in the workplace. What about that narrative? It's stunning to me that we are still debating women's equality in the United States. It's stunning to me. So here's what else we need to know. In the entire history of the United States Senate, we've had fewer than 40 women ever be elected. And as of last year, it was 34 women, the, the data was, and, and so we can just say under 35 or 40 women ever elected into the U.S. Senate. At the federal level, uh, we hover at about 20% representation of women. And that's even worse at the state level. There are some states that have only 5% representation of women. And it's not surprising that in those states, there are high rates of infant mater mortality, maternal mortality. Women's equality does matter to women's health. It does matter to women's safety and, of course, women's autonomy. And the point that you raise, of course, matters. And I've been talking about this in, in my research. When you think about this in the context of race, a state must have a compelling interest in order to justify its discrimination against a racial minority group, such as African Americans or Asians or Latinos. But we don't have to have that standard at all. A state doesn't have to have a compelling reason for discriminating against a woman. It can be an okay, all right, intermediary interest. That is unjustifiable. And I do think that we're still living within a kind of sex backlash against women. And as I began writing the book, Policing the Womb, I was looking for more vibrant answers than just, you know, what might seem reductive, like sexism, um, or, um, you know, masculinity, um, or patriarchy. But it's stunning when you look at the history of gender and sex inequality in our society, and how it continues to percolate today. And so just briefly for your audience, right? So um, we've lived in a system of coverture, where women were the property of their husbands legally, um, the term that many people have heard of rule of thumb. Uh, many people don't know that the rule of thumb anchored in judicial opinions, it, it related to how thick the piece of wood could be that a husband could use to beat his wife, so long as the instrument he used to beat her was no thicker than his thumb, then that was permissible. Or the history of marital rape in our country, which was legal until the 1980s, and there are still exceptions that are provided for marital rape in the United States, meaning that a man, so long as he was married to a woman, even 
if they were separated, could find his wife and rape her. And there are horrific cases that, you know, your your listening audience could read that would really be stunning to them, where they would say, oh my goodness, he kidnapped this woman who was not living with him. Um, he had had this history of domestic violence, and he raped her in such brutal way with other people watching, or he videotaped that or took photos of it. And yet to have a prosecutor or judge say, but there's an exception in the law that a husband cannot rape his wife. And those are just two examples. There are so many others that have been baked into our society. Um, and we can measure them by women's inability to vote. We can measure them by the fact that women were not allowed to become attorneys. And here we're looking at Supreme Court cases that were affirming uh, things like this, that women couldn't sit on juries and so forth. And, and these issues pile up. And so it's important as we look at these issues today that we recognize them in their context, meaning in our history. Yes. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about the pregnancy penalty article was you're situating a lot of the current controversy um, in literature that was coming out from the 19th century and phenomena like the eugenics movement um, in, in just a number of different scenarios where it just seemed clear that on the one hand, we thought that we'd sort of gotten beyond this. And yet it seems like we're just sort of drawn back constantly into battles that, you know, just it, it's it's amazing to see the persistence of some of these stereotypes and um, sort of power plays by a lot of the most vagrant society. And I'm wondering in particular, if you could discuss some of the ideas of reproductive property and how that ties into sort of to eugenics or eugenic ideals of the state having this uh, very deep, intimate control over the reproductive process. That's an excellent question, Frank. So, right, if these issues don't morph out of nowhere, right, they have um, they have legacy. So the first would be to really uh, engage with and understand our legacy of chattel slavery in the United States. We're ensconced within law and permitted within public and private uh, persons that they could own other people, right? I mean, so if we were to think about original false facts, right, original false facts would be that you could have a woman and her child standing on a table while people were bidding on her and for people to say, you don't have to worry about this as something that is immoral or unethical because she's not a human being. And for people to nod and look at themselves and say, yes, we don't have to worry about this because the chain around that little kid's neck and the chain around her neck, you know, they're not people. They're just chattel. They're like a, a pig, a cat, a cow, or a dog. And that not just for a day or a week or a month or a year or a decade, but for centuries, the people permitted themselves to think in that way. We don't have to be concerned about this. There is a poster that I keep in my office and that I have for nearly 20 years or so. And on this poster, it's an advertisement. It's a, it's a real replica, if you will, of uh, a slave party, an auction, right? So it's an auction and they're auctioning off um, cattle. And the sign says that there's plenty of food and drink and there's going to be banjo playing. And then there's a description of the items that are going to be auctioned off. You know, they're, they're the oxen and they're the horses and so forth. And they're the slaves and they're four mulattas. And I ask people when they're in my office, you know, what does this sign tell them? And, uh, and they see all of the words there. But what's interesting is there are very few who catch upon the mulattas because I ask, how did they get to be mulattas, right? I mean, we have people selling off their kids, basically, right? I mean, that's the history and legacy that we come from. And so when we think about this legacy of reproductive property, those were the early, you know, genesis of this. But we 
also see then this morphing after slavery in the United States. And we see after the period of reconstruction, this effort to try to understand what our country is. And we begin this process of then ranking people by their biological status, right? And what's interesting is that this includes not only blacks, right? There, This then includes poor white people, uh, poor white people who previously, probably decades and decades before, might have been indentured servants, which is just another form of slavery. But in the 19, early 1900s in the United States, this process of eugenics, right, this, this kind of institution of, of eugenics begins to emerge. And so in the state of Indiana, for example, Nick, um, it passes one of the first laws that permits the state to forcibly incarcerate someone who's thought of as a degenerate, someone who's thought of as socially unfit. And early on, if if a person um, had epilepsy, for example, that might be a medical condition that might trigger the person being thought of as, as socially and morally and um, unfit. But it begins to spread, right? So it is if there's a legacy of alcoholism in the family, if there's been any process institution in the family. If you're just poor and you've been a vagrant, this qualifies as being a person who is unfit. And this all crystallizes ultimately in a 1927 case called Buck v. Bell. And it's a case that involves a poor white girl who had been raped at the age of 20 by these by the nephew of someone whom she had worked for but was also considered a foster child of. She became pregnant. And because her mother had already been deemed to be unfit in the state of Virginia and was already being housed um, at a place they called the Virginia Colony, right? This colony for the unfit. Then Carrie was sent there too. And her case became a test case to go up before the United States Supreme Court. Essentially, the people who held the view that you could make determinations about people based on their genetics, their genetic background, um, the people who had that view, wanted a test case because they wanted to spread a model law about eugenics to all states. They wanted it to be legal in any state in the United States where people could be forcibly sterilized, where they could be confined, where they would no longer have an opportunity to ever have another child so as not to pollute the United States. Ultimately, in 1927, this case goes before the United States Supreme Court. And in one of the most chilling uh, decisions ever to be written, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes says that uh, it's better for all the world than to let these kids starve for their imbecility, his words, not mine, that society is better off um, not letting the unfit continuing continue their kind. And he says that the power that's invested in the state for vaccination extends to snipping the fallopian tubes. Uh, he concludes by saying that three generations of imbeciles um, are enough. And with that, uh, Carrie then is legally... Uh, the state of Virginia is able to legally uh, sterilize this woman against her will. Um, and it then proliferates. Um, ultimately, there were tens of thousands of Americans across the United States who were sterilized against their will, um, some of whom did not know. There have been cases in recent years in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and other places um, brought by individuals who later on realized that they were never able to have children. Some of these individuals were people who had been raped just like Carrie uh, in childhood. Yes, I 
teach those cases and what's going on in North Carolina, as well as uh, noting, as you did, the uh, the Indiana law. Uh, interestingly, the Indiana law was not repealed until 1974, and it's thought that uh, almost 2,500 women were uh, involuntarily sterilized in Indiana. A parallel track to this, um, I think, for me, you sum up in a quote, I think in a, a subsequent article, uh, wealthier, educated, white pregnant women are viewed through a different lens of decency and morality than their poorer counterparts. And this uh, reminded me of the great discussion we had with um, BU's Kiara Bridges a few weeks ago here on the pod. And I think you can draw a line, can't you, through a uh, through line from Harris against McRae through the Hyde Amendment and now defunding Planned Parenthood, mandating abortion restrictions in private insurance. And there's a real sense of, of economic inequality being another part of the Venn diagram of discrimination that perhaps you're uh, you're describing. That's right. And how exciting that you've had Kiara on the show. She does such brilliant work and you do brilliant work. This show is amazing. So what's really so compelling about this intersection of, of, of class and race in the United States is that we've seen over time the ways in which that intersection of class and race has been used in very pernicious ways against women of color. But I also want to flag how devastating it's been as well with regard to white women. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at the state of Alabama, just within recent years, there have been several hundred women who've been prosecuted, who've been arrested and charged for endangering their fetuses, for conduct that is deemed to be unhealthy during their pregnancy. But what's interesting about this is that they're being charged under a law that was never actually intended to to address them at all. Alabama has a child endangerment statute, and this statute was originally uh, enacted to try to discourage people from turning their homes into meth laboratories. And what this means is that the state was deeply concerned about the possibility of fire or these homes blowing up because of people, many men, um, creating meth labs of their homes. But rather than prosecutors going after the people who were doing that, many of which were men in the state, Instead, they put pressure on doctors to be informants or snitches, if you will, against the pregnant women who were coming in for medical care. And why I see this as particularly dangerous and also heinous is that pregnancy can be complicated and difficult for any woman. And you see certain distinctions, right? If a woman is wealthy and she's pregnant, but she has a backache, she can go to her doctor and get a prescription medication for that. If she's pregnant and her feet are swelling. She can go to her doctor and get a prescription for that. If she's pregnant and she has severe headaches during her pregnancy, she can go to her doctor and get a prescription for that. On the other hand, we say if you are poor and you lack insurance and you're suffering the same kinds of things, you should never be able to do anything that assists you in that way. And here I am not supporting people using illicit drugs, but I am saying that it is deeply troubling and problematic when medical personnel are used as deputies
deputized agents for the state to take information that would otherwise be deemed confidential by their patients and to turn that over to law enforcement. And here's what concerns me about this. We need every woman who's pregnant and wants to carry that pregnancy to term to visit with her doctors and nurses. We need for those people to get the best care possible. And that is no matter whether they're wealthy or they're poor. We need that no matter if they're struggling with drug addiction or not. And we know that medical care and attention is so much better for people who are struggling with addiction than is incarceration. When I've interviewed prosecutors in the state of Alabama, they've disclosed to me that they know that behind prison bars, women have access to a plethora of illicit drugs, which then raises the question, is a woman better off than being sent to prison and not getting rehabilitative care? And we also know that the rate of recidivism is between 40 and 60% in the United States. So it's it's wrongheaded. It goes down the wrong path, these types of prosecutions that are deeply class-based. And as to the second point that you were raising, which is with regard to abortion care, I find that one of the most compelling cases with regard to the status of women happens to be Roe v. Wade. When you read it, perhaps it's no surprise that Justice Blackman uh, had a house full of women, right? His wife, his several daughters that he consulted with when he was um, deliberating about Roe v. Wade. And he penned the uh, opinion for the court. And he does so with such incredible uh, empirical support and grace in terms of how he recognizes women as he talks about women and their status in society, the stigma against women, women's poverty, how poverty can become endemic and intergenerational when a woman is not prepared to have children, but she's living in poverty. He speaks to how her education can be disrupted and how her physical health can even be in jeopardy uh, in pregnancies that a woman is just not prepared to carry to term. I strongly recommend that people read the case because it's one of the most gracious cases in addressing the health and status of women. And I could only hope then that later when the court rejected the notion that poor women were deserving of state assistance. I mean, essentially after the Helms, um, after the Hyde Amendment, excuse me, um, the court basically said that, you know, the state has not done anything to cause women their poverty and therefore the state doesn't need to relieve it when it comes to their pregnancies. And I've written about the irony of that because in fact, what the state has done, both through its legislative arm and also through its judicial arm has been over the centuries to, in fact, entrench women in a status of second-class citizenship. So we also uh, will never forget Harrison McRae for the powerful opinion of Justice Marshall, which I think really got to the the nut of that. But I want to talk to you a little bit more about Roe, because you have a new piece in the Texas Law Review, Abortion, a Woman's, a woman's Private Choice. Incidentally, it's co-authored with someone apparently new to the Academy called Erwin Chemerinsky. Um, I, I hope working with you 
I, I hope this I hope this gives him the start in the academy he needs. So I I read that piece, Michelle, as as quite a strong critique of Roe. And I I see several um thrusts here. First of all, you don't appear to be a fan of the Griswold penumbra, which comes back in, in Roe and Wade. You don't seem to like the trimester approach and the absence of an absolute right based on gender equality is missing. Am I right that that's how you read Roe? So let's place this in, in a textured context. So yes, I mean, so the approach in Griswold, it's, it's, it's scrappy, right? Um, it, there, it is a reach. It's, it's looking in many different directions rather than being anchored in the 14th Amendment. And so what we argue is that this is really a 14th Amendment concern. Now, you raise the issue about equality. And actually, we don't go down that line in this particular case, but in this particular article, though I have in other works of mine, um, such as the Constitutional Battlefront piece that's published in the California Law Review, where I speak to this issue of equality that comes out of the 14th Amendment as being very important for this discussion. But let me pick up on what you're saying in terms of our critiques. And you've got, you've nailed a number of them, right? I mean, so the trimester uh, approach, it's, it's in some ways time stamped, isn't it, right? So as technology advances, it becomes easier uh, to support fetal health and development, right? So that ultimately this question about fetal viability, that line um, has, has in many ways uh, been reduced or has shrunk over time since 1973. We spend a lot of money and it's not for all babies, right? Where, where viability um, is a vibrant possibility. I mean, those are, are wealthier families or families that are able to utilize the healthcare system in such a way that it benefits them. Um, so the trimester approach itself is, is one that one has to be aware of its limitations given the advancements in biotechnology. But that said, I think where our strongest critique happens to be in this particular um, instance happens to be with regard to the Casey uh, decision. Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, is a decision that rolls back the fundamental um, the fundamental urgency that you see in Roe. I mean, Roe comes out in some ways kind of like the Muhammad Ali, if you will, of cases and recognizing where a woman is in her life and the importance of a of this being a one a woman's decision, a fundamental right for a woman to be able to end her pregnancy. And there are limitations with Roe. Let's be clear, because even Roe itself is a case that's about doctors not being criminalized for providing these particular procedures. I mean, I think that the case reflects its time with regard to where women stood in society. But Planned Parenthood v. Casey um, is then a shocking decision in regard to, you know, if you put it side by side with Roe. And, and here's why. Um, it's, it opens the door to what are these trap laws, these targeted, you know, regulations of abortion providers. Um, it suggests that so long as the state um, says that its interest is on behalf of women, 
then it can enact the types of laws that might actually be truly burdensome to women, but the state can actually make an argument that its efforts to achieve, let's say, informed consent with a woman or to protect her health can paper over other types of political interest in actually ending women's pregnancies or avoiding women being able to end their pregnancies. And so here's an example, uh, the 24-hour waiting period that comes out of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Well, now in a number of states, there are 72-hour waiting periods that do not include weekends and holidays that actually make it very difficult for women then to be able to have access to the right to terminate a pregnancy. Or in some states where they have instituted uh, the demand that a woman must have a vaginal ultrasound with a wand that is so large it could be part of a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey circus, right? But that she's supposed to have this inserted in her uterus and then hear a script that sometimes may be an inaccurate kind of script or reading about her pregnancy. Planned Parenthood v. Casey gives us this and it's shocking um, and it's disturbing and states have used then the kind of loophole or gap that comes through Planned Parenthood v. Casey um, to basically burden women's reproductive health care rights. As I read the, the piece in the Texas Law Review, I kept thinking about this interview that Zephyr Teachout recently did on the Ezra Klein show where she was talking about Buckley v. Vallejo. I decided uh, relative, about the same time or in the same five, ten year period as Roe. And it is one of those areas where it seems like Demos, lots of groups in the campaign finance context are saying, we've got to look at the basic foundations of our jurisprudence in this area. And I see that this is your contribution with Chemerinsky going in the same direction that made it such an interesting read in terms of asking the first principles questions. Um, I know that we're running short of time though. So rather than getting deeper into that piece, I on our agenda, we had some of your work on underage marriage. And I think it, it just fits so well and complements our earlier discussions of autonomy and the state's role in uh, women's lives. And I was wondering if you could describe this problem, Michelle. I'm happy to, Frank. So a, a hidden secret in many ways that we've had in our country is that we permit um, children, they can be 9, 10, 11 years old, to get married in the United States. Um, and virtually every state is allowed that. New York has just, uh, just last week, Governor Cuomo enacted, signed a bill into law that will not allow for that to happen in the state of New York, but other states do. And so the organization Unchained, which is the only organization in the United States that specifically and exclusively devotes its energy to this question, has tracked states and the rate of children uh, being forced or coerced or permitted to marry early. And we're looking at between 2000 and 2010, basically about a quarter of a million children in the United States married under the age of 17. And before people get nervous and say, well, it's a 17 year old and she's about to turn 18. No, we're talking about children as young as 11 and 12 and 13 years old across the country being married. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because we're talking about people who the state wouldn't allow to be able to drive a car, smoke a cigarette, uh, vote, um, but who the state would say, yes, she can be married off to an adult person. And that too is, is absolutely shocking because what we know is that for people who are very young, for girls who are or very young, who are forced into marriage, and I've tracked this in the Philippines and in, in, in 
India and South Africa, and the same would be true here in the United States, there's the risk of early pregnancy. And that risk of early pregnancy also comes with the risk of sexually transmitted diseases. It also comes with the risk of complications during pregnancy. And we also know that the earlier that a girl uh, is pushed into marriage, the more likely it is that her education will be interrupted. In some instances, it may only be temporary. But for a number of young women, that's it. The age at which she is married off, that pretty much stops when she is um, any future education. And in my book, Policing the Womb, I actually devote a chapter to this. And I follow the life of a, of a woman named Sherry, uh, who was forced into marriage when she was 11 years old. Um, by her mid-20s, she had nine children. Off and on, her husband would leave her. Um, she experienced sexually transmitted uh, diseases. Um, she ended up being married again in her 20s to an abusive person um, who ultimately uh, tried to physically harm her. And she had experienced rapes by the person. She became pregnant at the age of 10. Um, and then her family and her church forced her to marry the individual when uh, she was 11 years old. That often is part of the circumstance of these marriages, particularly for the younger that the girl is. There's already been some sexual violence and abuse. She may already be pregnant and members of the church and her family uh, may believe that she gains better legitimacy or, or kind of legitimizes who she is by marrying the person who raped her or someone else that they find uh, to marry the child. Well, let's hope that uh, New York is not the last state to take action on that issue. Just as New York signed that law, uh, Governor Chris Christie in New Jersey the week before vetoed such a bill. Hmm. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Goodwin, who on Twitter you can find at Michelle B. Goodwin. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-E B-G-O-O-D-W-I-N. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. We post our show notes at Twitter.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>